Thank you for listening to the Celebration Church podcast. For more information about Celebration Church, go to ccacron.org. There you will find information about our church, upcoming events, and how to make a contribution to the ministry of Celebration Church. We hope this message is an encouragement to you. Today I want to take a look at as it was in the days of Noah. What does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus said as it was in the days of Noah? What does it mean when Jesus said as it was in the days of Lot? As I said earlier, I hope that I can give you a snapshot in time of this antediluvian world, this pre-flood world, that I can bring it into this modern age and help you see what was taking place. Jesus said that it would be like the days of Noah. It would be like the days of Lot. In Matthew 24 and verse 42, it says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. We don't know when Jesus is coming. Everybody's trying to predict it and everybody's trying to put a date on it. But we do not know the day and the hour which he would come. Jesus said in verse 36, Only my Father in heaven knows the date. And so... We don't know the exact time, the exact, the exact date of his coming, but we know by Jesus' instruction that we can know the signs of the season, and he tells us that we ought to live ready. We ought to be prepared for at any moment he could return. At any moment, the trump of God could sound, and the shout from heaven could be heard, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, an atomic second, you won't have time to get everything ready. You won't have time to get your house in order. When Jesus comes at that moment, at that atomic second, either you're ready or you're not. Either you're going or you won't. In a twinkling of an eye, just as it was with the flooding that they're seeing right now in Louisiana, just as it was as in the days of Noah, the flooding, the fountains of the deep opened up and the rain began to pour and gradually, gradually upon inch, upon inch, upon foot, upon foot, the water rose and it rose above the highest of heights and everyone and everything that breathed was drowned and they had been warned of coming judgment. They had been warned of things to come and they ignored the voice of the warning. Jesus has warned us of his coming. He has told us of things to come. We ought to live ready. The atomic, that atomic second, that moment in history, the moment in time that will change everything, that will change everything, will happen quickly. At that last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The times are upon us. Hallelujah. As believers, we have a reason to shout. As believers, we have a hope of glory. As believers, we have a reason to find hope and joy in the Lord at His coming, at His return. But around us are people who are on a pathway to perishing. And I hope that today the reality of the times and the seasons begins to penetrate your heart. I want to take a look at the times of Noah today. What does it mean as in the days of Noah? I want to look at and consider the climate, the culture, and the carnality of Noah's time. 
the climate, the culture, and the carnality of Noah's time. First off, let's take a look at the climate. Now, how many of you were present in the days of Noah? That's a little bit of a joke. None of us were there, obviously. We weren't there. We don't know all the specifics, but we can read Scripture and we can get an idea of what the pre-flood world looked like. The first thing that we know is that there was a, there was a water vapor around the earth, that the, the firmament above the earth that, that Genesis talks about, the Bible indicates that there was, the atmosphere was different than it is today, that there was a water vapor. The oxygen, this would have meant that the oxygen levels in the earth at that time were much higher. That means that people were healthier. It could attribute to the reason why they lived longer. They were not as susceptible to disease and viruses because of this oxygen level being higher. It was because of this water vapor that there was a less hazardous or harmful effects from the sun. It would filter out some of the rays of the sun, but there weren't clouds like you and I know today. The, the, the water vapor, the condensation and the evaporation of the water and the clouds weren't happening like that. Uh, there was a different water cycle that was taking place. And the, and the water, because of this water vapor, the the temperature would have maintained a mildly warm temperature throughout the earth. It would have been comfortable. There wouldn't have been extreme weather patterns or long seasons of, of drought or long seasons of flooding. It was a comfortable environment. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was a comfortable environment. It was a place that would not challenge. You know, we're, we're inhibited by our snow and our tornadoes and our hurricanes and earthquakes and all of the weather patterns that happen in today's world. They weren't hindered by those things. They were, they were unencumbered by, by these weather patterns that we're used to today. Genesis talks about the rivers that were flowing in the Garden of Eden. We can assume that, that there was rivers in the world. The bodies of water probably looked a little bit different. They probably weren't as full as they are today. The, the mountains were probably much smaller. The, the, the bodies, uh, the land masses were, looked different. The plant life would have looked different. It was much more varied. It was much, uh, much more vibrant because of this consistent climate that was being created. And so you can get a picture that this, this pre-flood world in our minds would be you know, pretty picturesque. And they weren't dealing with the things and the climate that we would be dealing with today. Yet in, in spite of all of these things, this, this wonderful world, this climate and this, this atmosphere that was around them. We know that it didn't rain and the, and the, and the earth was watered daily by a mist and, and all of these things that were happening. This wonderful, picturesque place. Man still died. They may live longer, but they still died. They still went through the natural cycles of life. They lived 700, 900 years, but they still died. I want to take a look at the culture of the pre-flood world. Genesis gives us some great indications of what was happening at this time. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1, it says that men were multiplying. The word multiplied there means exponential increase. Some estimates are based in the billions. Who knows? We weren't there. But we do know. We do know that they were living longer. And because they were living longer, they were having more and more children. And so the possibility is very real. Genesis 4.17 tells us that they were building cities. Luke echoed that. They were building. Genesis 4.19, we see that polygamy came into the culture. Lamech began to have two wives. 
Everybody had had one wife, and then Lamech, who was the evil, he was the epitome, you could say, of evil from the descendants of Cain, decided to take two wives. He had a wife to procreate, and he had a wife for pleasure, is what history and Jewish tradition tells us. That this, this was the culture in which they lived, polygamy. Genesis 4.20 tells us that cattle ranches were being formed. They were living in tents and having cattle ranches. Genesis 4.21 tells us that they were making instruments and becoming musicians. Genesis 4.22 tells us that they learned how to cultivate the metal works and begin to do metal works with brass and iron. You can get from this picture that they were a developing society. Everything that it took to maintain life, they were discovering. They were discovering how to maintain a city, how to build a city. They were understanding music and how to play music, how to build instruments. We understand that there were those from Scripture who were playing godly music and those who were playing ungodly music. We get the picture of the, of the time and the days of Noah. These metal works that they had developed, we know that they advanced in their, in their metal working to the point that they were creating things for violence. They were creating instruments of violence and murdering people as a result of their metal working. Men were living, you have to understand, they were living for hundreds, 700, 800, 900 years. And in that time, they were able to perfect their crafts, their skills, and all that they were doing, they were able to perfect it. And because the generations were living longer alongside of other generations, there was less of passing down the, the information as it was they were showing them in, in live person, how to do these things. It wasn't a tradition having to be passed because they were learning alongside of their great, 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 great grandparents how to do things. Do you understand the days? Are you getting, am I helping create a picture for you what the days of Noah looked like? When Jesus said it would be as in the days of Noah, in other words, what it took these people, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years to perfect. He was saying that in our generation, in modern generation, what has taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to learn and to perfect would be accomplished in 70, 80, 90 years. And he is speaking, when Jesus was saying these things, remember who he was speaking to. He was speaking to the disciples, the church people who were around at the time of the Romans. The Romans were developing streets and canals. They were developing the, the, the bathroom system and all the, and the buildings and all that they were doing. And yet he was saying, what you see around you, what's coming will even surpass this. There will be great development great increase of the culture, great development of the knowledge and the technology, and then, of course, the carnality of that day. If you go all the way back, and I feel that we have to go all the way back to Genesis 4, which really isn't that far from the flood. You see, because the flood happened 1,656 years after Adam, if you follow the genealogy, 1,656 years came the flood. So we're really not going back that far. Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel bring their sacrifices before the Lord, and the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifice, a sacrifice of, of the field. But he rejects 
He rejects Cain's sacrifice, a sacrifice of fruit and grain. You see, it had been established that blood had to be offered. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God was looking for the shedding of blood. He was looking for a sacrifice. Abel brought the sacrifice that was worthy. Cain did not. Remember, God killed the first animal as a sacrifice to clothe Adam and Eve. Abel brought his sacrifice. Cain was rejected. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7 God said to Cain that sin lies at your door. The word sin there in the Hebrew is the word for sin sacrifice or sacrifice for sin or sin offering. It's the same word used over a hundred times throughout the Old Testament to signify that he was to bring an offering for his sin to avoid being ruled over by sin. And yet he didn't do it. He became rebellious. Not only did he become rebellious, he began to plan a premeditated murder. You see, we miss this in the English because the English in Genesis 4 doesn't really catch the full interpretation. But, but what Genesis 4 tells us is that, that Cain goes to Abel. And he not just happened to wander into the field. Our English sometimes translates there. He didn't just happen to wander in the field with Abel. He went to Abel and he said, Abel, would you come with me to the field, is what the Hebrew says. And when he, they got out to the field, then that's when Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. It was a premeditated, vicious attack on his brother. This person that was supposed to care for him, Cain, his older brother, the one who was to love him and to guide him and to direct him was the one who rose up and killed him. And thus began this cycle of murder and hatred and violence down Cain's lineage. If you take a look at Cain's lineage, you find Enoch is the firstborn. Enoch, Cain built a city and named it after Enoch. Irad was a fugitive. Mahujael means struck by God. Methushael, we don't really know much about him. Lemek, as I said earlier, the son of Cain. There was two Lemeks, but Lemek, the son of Cain, we know was or viewed as the epitome of evil. There is a little bit of Jewish tradition that's passed along here. He had The Bible indicates that he had two wives. One was Adah and one was Zillah. Adah was the one that was to bear children. Zillah was the beautiful one. History and Jewish tradition tells us that this was the woman who she drank something to try to stop being pregnant. She wanted to maintain her beauty all of her life, never wanted to have kids, and she ended up having two. She had Tubal Cain, who did metalworking, and a daughter named Nama, which means pleasantness. Jabal was a candle ratcher. Jubal was a musician. Tradition tells us Again, just walking down the, the carnality of Cain's lineage here, all of these were the unrighteous lineage of Cain. They were all known to live at the epitome of sin and violence and depravity of man. Lamech went out with his son one day to go hunting in the field, and the Bible alludes to this and matches Jewish tradition here, but, but the, he went out hunting one day with Tubal Cain, in the field, and they saw what they thought he, he, Lemek had a hard time seeing. And so they thought it was an animal coming and he was going to kill the animal for food. And he shot his bow to kill the animal, but it was actually Cain who he killed. It was his great, 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 
grandfather who he killed, and he blamed his son Tubal-Cain who was with him, and he turned and not only killed Cain, but he killed his son Tubal-Cain for allowing him to kill his, his family, his lineage. You can get the idea here that the wickedness and the vileness of man, the Bible goes on and begins to tell us about this wickedness. We don't have to look far into Jewish tradition to get it. We don't have to look actually very far in Scripture to find it. It's, it's told right here. Let's go. It's Genesis 6. As you're going there, I want you to think about this. At one time in the, in the day of Lemek, if you take a look, and we will in a moment, and, and Lemek, the son of Seth, the righteous lineage of Seth, and we're going to go through, and I want to show you in this lineage, the righteous lineage of Seth. At one time, in one generation, there was eight generations alive. We're lucky in today's generation to have four. It's a miracle to have four. Three is, is a max. They had eight at one time. Adam was living at the time of Lemek. And we'll talk about this in a moment. But I want you to understand from this, there were eight generations of ungodly. There were eight generations of the unrighteous, but there were eight generations of righteous preachers who were declaring coming judgment. We'll take a look at this, but let's first look at the wickedness and the carnality of man at this time. In Genesis 6 verse 5, it says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was a universal problem. It wasn't isolated to one part of the earth everywhere was experiencing the depravity of man. In Genesis 6, 5, it also says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Their desires were for everything evil. Their meditations, their thoughts were constantly evil. People lived longer, and they were perfecting their art of sin. They were perfecting how to fulfill their greatest evil meditations and thoughts and desires. They perfected, as it were, the art and the craft of evil. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, it says, The earth was corrupt, and, and all flesh had corrupted their way. In other words, they were at a great time of development. They were experiencing a great time of advancement technologically, the knowledge and the skills, the, the arts and the crafts and, and the creative arts and all of these things were at great development, but they were at a great time of moral and spiritual decay. Genesis chapter 11, chapter 6, excuse me, verse 11, 13 says that the earth was filled with violence, cruelty, oppressiveness, and injustice. They were perfecting their skills to develop ways to be oppressive and cruel and injustice. Does this sound familiar? You know, I'm not one of the, those preachers that are going to go through and pull out all the facts of today. You can go and do that on your own time. I, I just want to give you scripture and give you the Bible and tell you what Jesus said. The reality of the days in which we live are all around us. In the midst of this perverse generation, though, in the midst of this unrighteous generation, God raises up this generation of Seth, the lineage of Seth. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 38, we see that this lineage of Seth was the righteous lineage of Christ. This was the family that God placed his hand on, the only eight that would survive the flood. This was the family that God would use. Can you imagine having family members that lived pre-flood? 
That was the lineage. That was the lineage of Christ. That even at the beginning of all things, God had a plan of redemption in mind. Even at the beginning of all things, God saw to the end of all things and said, I will make a plan of redemption from the earth. I will save a family. I will save a family unto myself and they will be the lineage of my son. Out of them will come the righteous lineage. Out of them, I will save the world from their sin. Even in utter destruction and utter judgment, God still made a way of escape. Seth's genealogy is extensive. I won't take the time to go through it all. There are just a few that I want to zero in on. Enoch is the first. Jared gave birth to Enoch at the age of 162 years. Can you imagine having a baby at 162 years of age? In Genesis 5, 21, verses through 24, it says, Enoch lived 65 years and he begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained this witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And Jude Verses 14 and 15, it says it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's all the Bible tells us about Enoch. But oh, it is such a powerful biography about Enoch. Here is a man who is the seventh from Adam who dies literally just 69 years before the birth of Noah. He is this man, a righteous man, who has not said of anyone since the time of Adam that he walked with God. He had this testimony. Here is a man in the middle of a perverse, unruly, morally and spiritually decaying society that he walked with God. And what happened to him? He was walking along one day and he was and he was not for God took him. That's what's going to happen to you and I, friends. One of these days, if you're walking... there's the, there's the prerequisite. If you're walking with the Lord, you and I can be walking along one day and poo, we out of here, baby. That trumpet's going to sound and in a split second, atomic second, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm sailing high. I'm getting out of this place. I'm looking forward to my eternal reward. But If you find yourself here today like those of the evil and perverse generation not walking with the Lord, you will not have that luxury of being taken out of the world before judgment comes. He walked with God. And he warned his generation, the Bible says, of coming judgment. Now this is interesting because Enoch was prophesying of coming judgment, but he wasn't prophesying about the flood. You go back and you read Jude's account and Peter's account and the Hebrew account. He wasn't prophesying. You see, 
Enoch said that he, he was speaking of the Lord, that the Lord was coming with ten thousands of his saints. Now, Jesus can't come with ten thousands of his saints until he comes for the ten thousands of his saints. What Enoch was prophesying was the rapture, the blessed hope of the church, that there was coming a day when the Lord would return. He would gather up his beloved. He would take his church out of this world. There would be a time of judgment like this world has never seen. And then Christ would return with his saints and execute final judgment on all the earth. It's coming and it's coming soon. The final judgment, friend, is coming. The times and the days of the age in which we live, as Jesus said, it would be as it was in the days of Noah. You know, it's interesting because Hebrews tells us that they were looking. He was not found because God took him up. That means that people, his family members, were looking for him and they couldn't find him. And my intent today is not to preach on the, the blessed hope as the Bible calls it, the rapture as we've adapted the name for it. The Bible term is blessed hope, but I, my intent is not preaching specifically on that today. But, but let me just pause for a moment and say this about the rapture, the blessed hope. It is coming. It is coming. Peter says that in the last days there will arise scoffers. There will arise people, scoffers, who will mock Oh, the Lord's not coming. He hasn't come yet. This isn't happening. It's not going to happen. Oh, yeah, friend, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. When Christ will come and he will take his church out of this world. And the Bible made it clear with Enoch here, they will be looking. You can look for me all day, baby. You ain't going to find me. Good luck. Have fun going through all my belongings. Help yourself. You can take whatever you want. I don't need it. I'm gone. <laughs> and I'm only coming back on a horse riding with Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to be following along. <laughs> yeah, let's go, Jesus. <laughs> it's coming, friends. Time, as Grace saying earlier, is ticking away. In the middle of all of this, Enoch has a son. The next generation I want to look at, Enoch has a son, and he named him Methuselah. All of our JBQ parents probably know that he was the oldest man who lived, 969 years. But let me tell you a little bit about Methuselah. We skip over these truths about Methuselah. Methuselah, yeah, he lived 969 years. But Enoch named him prophetically. Remember, Enoch was a prophet. He was prophesying things that were going to happen at the very end of the age. From the very beginning of time, he's prophesying about the end of time. And he has a son, and he names him Methuselah, which means his death shall bring judgment. Now, that's an interesting thought because Methuselah died seven days before the flood. 969 years he had watched all of his family come, all of his family died. He'd watched his, his own son live and die. I wonder what the conversations that he had with Noah. I wonder what kind of conversations Methuselah had with Noah, knowing that Noah was the one that God had raised up to bring comfort and deliverance 
I wonder what the conversations were had between Methuselah and Noah about the progression of carnality and the depravity of man. Methuselah. And then there's Lamech, the righteous lineage of Seth. Remember, there was two Lamechs. There was the unrighteous Lamech of Cain and the righteous Lamech of Seth. Lamech died at 777 years old. A picture of the completion of all times. He was the generation. He was the father of Noah. At his time, there were eight generations alive. Adam lived for 56 years after the birth of Lamech. Seth, the son of Adam, lived 168 years after the birth of Lamech. Enoch, who was prophesying coming destruction, was still alive for 113 years. He was still on the earth for 113 years after the birth of Lamech. And all the other generations that were named from Seth were alive. Eight generations of people were living at the time of Lamech, the father of Noah. And when Noah was born in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 29, Lamech said this about his son, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And he named him Noah, which means comforter. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says this of Noah, By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, it says, When the patience of God, I love this verse, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It's interesting, there was eight family members saved and eight generations of righteous preachers. A lot of people tried to put a time frame on how long it took to build the ark. Some people, by the verse in Genesis 6-3, say that because Jesus would only contend with man for 120 years, that it took Noah 120 years to build it. I don't think that that's true. I think that's a false assumption. If you look at the genealogy that was recorded, Noah had Sham, Ham, and Japheth at the age of 500. <laughs> Can you imagine? At the age of 500, he began having children. Sham, Ham, and Japheth. Shem became the righteous lineage of Christ. We know at the age of 98, Shem experienced the flood. The flood came when Noah was 600 years old. By those genealogy records, we can kind of deduct that Noah was probably, or the, 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 the building of the ark started some around probably 500, 550 years, probably took 50, 60, 70 years to build, not the 120, but regardless, it took a while to build, regardless, in spite of all of the warnings that Noah gave, Hebrews says that he was a righteous preacher of things to come, that people ignored the warnings. Every hammer hit against that wood, against the gopher wood. Every hit that echoed through creation's side was a warning of judgment to come. Every time that Noah hit that ark and his workers were pounding away, it was echoing in their ears of the reality of things to come. And they ignored the warning. They ignored the warning. And it came time for the, for the flood to happen. The rains poured. 
The fountains of the deep opened up. Some say that the, the volcanoes began to erupt with water and ash and the, all the contents that was inside of the earth. And the, the vapor cloud around the earth began to pour out all of the rain that it contained, all of the water that it contained. And for 40 days and for 40 nights, an absolute deluge came upon this earth. Consider the times of Lot, Jesus said in Luke what does that mean? In Genesis 19, we see the account of Sodom. You know, we make a lot of judgments about Sodom. We're really quick to say, oh yeah, that's the place where the homosexuals were. And we see that indicated in Genesis 19. I'm not ignoring that fact. But can I tell you that there was a lot more happening in Sodom than just homosexuality? Actually, I might surprise you. You might find yourself, after we read the scripture, utterly shaken to your core about what God was mad about. You might find that Akron looks very similar. You might find that maybe your own life looks a little similar. You might find that America looks a little bit similar. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we get a glimpse inside of Sodom. And let me say this, sin is sin. And it deserves the judgment of God. But in case you think that one is greater than the other, or one city is better than the other, or that America might be spared because of, you know, they're not as bad as Sodom, let's just take a look at what Ezekiel prophesied. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. In other words, the sins of Sodom from this scripture were this. Pride. I know no, nobody deals with pride. Gluttony. We'll put a mirror right here. No more need to say. They were consumed with prosperity and success to the point of inactivity. In other words, they were experiencing luxury with laziness. They had the means to support the less fortunate, but instead ignored them. They had an attitude of superiority and arrogance. And then they committed unclean and disgusting acts which, by the way, is not limited only to homosexuality. The sins of Sodom. And for those sins, God wiped them away as he saw fit. What does all of this mean? Let me, let me wrap this up for you today and give you an application, if you will, of all that I've shared with you. Maybe today I've broadened your horizon today when Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, maybe now you can begin to understand a little bit deeper and a little bit more fully of what Jesus was talking about when he said that the days of his return would be like the days of Noah and Lot. The first thing I would say about it is that God is patient. Allowing for the bowl of judgment to fill to its absolute full. In 1 Peter in verse, chapter 3, verse 20, it said, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, God waited patiently for judgment and the wrath of the bowl of his wrath to come to its absolute full. He is waiting 
He is waiting. He is waiting patiently. And when the day of judgment on this earth comes, it will come at the fullest extent with the bowl of his wrath at the fullest. Every last drop of the wrath of God that has been stored up towards the judgment of man and sin will be poured out on the earth. In Revelation 16, 1, it says, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, the voice of God saying to the angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The full wrath and the full fury of God's judgment against sin is coming. It will not delay when the patience of God has been absolutely perfected and the Fullness of time has come. The same was spoken about Jesus when he came for the first time as a baby in the manger. When the fullness of time had come, he was born. God is a patient God, and he is waiting on the fullness of time that the every last one, every last person who is part of his bride has been brought in to the bridegroom. Every last soul that is to be born again, he is waiting patiently and then the fullness of his judgment will come. My other observation of this is that God is merciful and he warns of coming judgment. Eight generations of righteous preachers. Enoch, the eighth from Adam, warned of the end-time judgment. Matthew 24, verses 39-42 says this, And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be coming the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. We know that he's coming. He's warned us. He's warned us of his return. You will be going about your normal business. You will be going about your normal agenda and your schedule. And all of a sudden, he will return. One taken, one left. If we look at the statistics there, 50% of the population would be taken and 50% left. I don't know the statistics, but we see it echoed again with the, the, the parable of the ten virgins. Five foolish, five wise. All were looking for the coming of the bridegroom. All were preparing themselves for the coming of the bridegroom. But only five were able to go because only five had truly prepared themselves. Only five were ready for the call of the bridegroom. The bridegroom cometh. The bridegroom cometh. And I'm here today to say to you, the bridegroom cometh. Prepare yourself. Get yourself ready. Be full of the Holy Ghost. Be full of the righteousness of God. He's coming. His coming and His righteous day. The righteousness of God. When, he, when that day comes, every eye will see Him. Every eye will see Him. The Bible says that they will look, they will run to the mountains to hide. They will ask, they'll call upon the rocks to fall on them, and they will not escape. Judgment 
is coming. My last observation about all of this that we've read and discovered is this. God has made his sons and daughters a voice in the wilderness calling out. We are the voice in the wilderness. Like John the Baptist, God has set his hand on his sons and his daughters. We are a voice in the darkness crying out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That is our message. That is what God has placed within our bellies. That is what God has placed in our mouths. And that ought to be our message to this world. Behold, He's coming. And He's coming. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. Are you ready for the trumpet call of God? Are you ready for the atomic second? Are you ready for that moment when Christ would return? Have you ever found yourself lost at night in the woods? Can't see, no light, nowhere to go, don't know where you're headed, and all you're worried about is the spiders falling in your hair. (laughs) And someone in the middle of the darkness says, over here, come over here. This is the way to safety, come over here. That's our voices in the wilderness and the darkness of this world. Come over here, this is the path to safety. This is the path of righteousness. This is the highway of holiness. Get on the path, narrow is the path, straight is the way, small is the gate, but get on the path, get on the highway of holiness before the Lord returns. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 and 17, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner, what manner, what manner, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know the judgment's coming. You know that Christ is coming. You know that what is ahead and in store. Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. And Jude 23 says this, But others, saving with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You and I are the mouthpiece, the voice of God declaring of judgment to come. You know, the great thing is that we have more than just eight of us declaring the righteousness yes. and the great, thing, the great things of the Lord to come. The only thing that will change America is the righteousness of the church. That the church returns to holiness, has an awakening to their very core, and is on fire for God. You will either burn for God today, or you will burn in his eternal judgment. There is no in-between. Jesus wrote to the Laodicean church, because of your lukewarmness, I will spit you out of my mouth. There is no in-between. I'd rather that you be cold or hot. Maybe today you're a little uncomfortable. That's good. 
My prayer is that you feel hell's flames snapping at your feet. I would rather you feel them today and the reality of the judgment to come than you say, Pastor, you never warned me. This is why, my friends, that I am so absolute against a seeker-sensitive, make-you-feel-good message that will lead you right into the depths of the consuming flames of hell itself. You feeling good about yourself and having all the riches that the earth could afford lavishly dumped in your lap will do you no good when you stand before the judgment seat of God. It will do you no good. And I feel such an urgency in my heart. I don't say this of myself. I feel a righteous tenacity come on me as I even say that. I feel in my heart that there is an alignment that is happening between the church world and the, and the world, the political world, and everybody's trying to get in good with politics. Can I just say this? At the end of the day is the righteousness of God being preached from the pulpit. Our president, our this, that, the other thing, now I don't care, is the righteousness of God being preached from the pulpit. Now let me say this. In Noah's generation, let me pause and say this. In Noah's generation, there were people, they were full, full, leadership was full of vileness, wickedness. We know this. Nowhere do we see the righteous generation of Seth trying to overtake the evilness or the vileness of the wicked generation. They keep preaching the word of truth. Judgment is coming. They kept on with the righteousness of God. Does our president need to be born again? Yes, but if he's not, I'm not going to stop preaching the righteousness of God. Is our country going to heaven or to hell in a handbag? I, who the heck knows? I pray for mercy on our country, but only God knows the end of all things. Nowhere is America mentioned in the end times prophecy. Who the heck knows? I don't know. I mean, everybody makes speculation. All I know is I want to be there and on God's side when the trumpet sounds. And I'm going to do my part as a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. everything in between, you can get mad at me. You can get offended with me. That's okay. I want you in heaven. If you get to heaven and you're still offended with me, you can take that up with Jesus. You might just barely make it in. I don't know. But at least you're there. The wrath of God. Noah and Lot's day were but shadows of the judgment to come. If you think about the floods that have overtaken the earth, that are even the small floods that are happening right now in Louisiana, the flood that overtook the earth in the days of Noah was just a shadow. The waters ascended. The waters ascended the mountains. Everything that had breath was destroyed. There was not one mountain peak that wasn't covered by the water. The entire earth was consumed by a deluge of water. Sodom was consumed by fire and brimstone. 
The Bible says that when Lot went back out after it had been consumed, he looked and it was a smoldering ash from the earth, utterly destroyed. They are all but shadows of the judgment to come. Eternal judgment. This eternal judgment will be an internal flood of fire. The Bible calls it the lake of fire. It will be one wave of crashing liquid lava burning and consuming all that are there. And as soon as one wave rolls over the person, the next, and it will be an unrelenting time of judgment and torment, this lake of eternal fire. One wave of fire and torment followed by a next, followed by the next, followed by another wave. And it will be for eternity. The judgment of God. The unrelenting judgment of God towards sin. And we're worried about what color of the pews we have and how wonderfully our pastor preaches or doesn't preach or how great the quality of the worship is or do we feel comfortable in church? Jesus' message from the very beginning of his preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it didn't stop. There's only one way, friend. There's only one way. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. God help us if the statistics in Matthew 25 are accurate that half were left and half were taken. That means I'm looking at people that half of you will be left behind. This is why we are to work out when Scripture talks about, Paul talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. He does not mean that by our works we are saved. He does not mean that by our works that we somehow can gain access for someone else into heaven. You can't pray enough prayers or drop, drop enough pennies in the offering plate to buy someone out of heaven or buy someone out of hell, excuse me, and buy them into heaven. You can't do enough works to obtain your salvation to get yourself out of hell. It is by grace through faith are you born again. It is the only way. But once you are born again, the result of faith in your heart and the result of grace in your heart is a life that is transformed, a life of righteousness. You cannot look at me and tell me that you are born again and you continue to live like the devil. Reality check today. If you live in a rebellious attitude, are you looking like Christ? If you live continued on in your sin, I'm not talking about an occasional sin or, or having, having a moment of sin. I'm talking about living in sin. I am looking at people today that come to church on Sunday and go home and look like the devil on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and at 9.55 decide to put on their Jesus hat and come to church, sing a few spiritual songs, and then go home and look like the devil. Well, pastor, this isn't very encouraging. 
reality check. My encouragement for you today is this. If you need a pat on your back, get hell out of you and get Jesus into you. That's my encouragement. Apparently, I have offended people. They've been living, leaving all service. That's okay. Here's my encouragement for you. The Holy Spirit has come to be your helper. If you're here today and you're struggling with sin, if you're here today and you don't know if you're born again, maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with just being religious. You are the great actor. You have your religious mask on. And everybody thinks you look great, but on the inside and behind the scenes, things are not so lovely. Inside of you is full of everything vile and wretched, and it stinks. And your sin, I'm warning you, is ascending the nostrils of God, and it's filling the bowl of the wrath of God against you. Do not continue to play the religious games, but allow God to transform you and to change you by the Holy Ghost. It is the only way to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It is the only way. Jesus said to Nicodemus, the only way in is that you must be born again. Someone might say this morning, well, pastor, I thought your evangelistic message was supposed to happen on September 25th. You're really getting ahead of the game here because judgment (laughs) begins in the house of the Lord. Judgment begins here. If we call ourselves Christians and are Example to those around us is not of godly character and godly nature, then the Lord help us. Remember last week? Repent that seasons of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Why don't you stand with me this morning? Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Lord, we thank you that you have given us clear indication of the signs of the times and the things that are coming. Lord, we worship you and we thank you, Father, that you have warned us. You have told us of things to come. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to not fall asleep in our apathy. Lord, cause us to not fall asleep at the day of judgment, but Lord, we would open our mouths wide and loud and declare, prepare the way of the Lord. Lord, there are those in our lives that you've placed in our path that we are going to have and have had divine appointments with. Lord, I pray that you would give as they prayed in Acts 4, your servants' boldness. Stretch forth your hands and perform signs and wonders on behalf of your people, confirming your word. Give us boldness that we might declare your word with all boldness and courageous, not lacking in anything. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for any of my friends that are here today that are away from you, that do not know you. Maybe they have an idea about you or have been striving to get to you and have yet to achieve it. Lord, today the reality of grace by faith would settle into their heart. The reality of the redemptive plan of heaven would come in 
Lord, that they know that they know that they know that they are born again. It's a new day. Their sins have been forgiven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for joining the Celebration Podcast. For more information, visit ccacron.org or call us at 330-762-7458. You can also download the Celebration app from iTunes or the Android store. With my father, it's so hard.